Hi, it's Tim here, and before you hear the podcast, just a quick note, due to rights reasons, the songs have been shortened for this podcast. Every song is taken from Skunk and Ansys, Paranoid and Sunburnt. All tracks are written by Skin and Len Aaron, except And Here I Stand and Weak, which are credited to Skin, Ace, Richard Lewis and Robert France. It was released on 18th of September 1995 on the labels What It Was Called Before, One Little Indian, and What It's Called Now, One Little Independent, and Epic. Enjoy. Tim's listening party was a lockdown sensation. Unfortunately, it was on Twitter, which you can't listen to. But Absolute Radio has the solution. Tim Burgess explores seminal albums alongside the artists who brought them to life. Absolute Radio presents Tim's listening party with Tim Burgess. Hi, it's Tim's Listening Party on Absolute Radio. I'm Tim Burgess and welcome to another episode of the show in which we play back an album together and I sit down with an artist and go through that very record. It's just like what we've been doing since way back in that very first lockdown, having one great big listening party, except this time it's on the radio. That doesn't mean you can't get involved on Twitter, though, by using the hashtag Tim's Twitter listening party. So please tweet me throughout the show, at Tim underscore Burgess. So far, as part of this show, I've been joined by Fallout Boy, The Kinks, and you two for listening parties. If you've missed any episodes, be sure to catch up by searching for Tim's Listening Party wherever you get your podcasts. This episode, I'm joined by one of rock's most powerful singers. She broke ground as a black woman fronting the hard rock band Skunk and Nancy in the Britpop-dominated 1990s music scene. She's played for Nelson Mandela, shared a stage with David Bowie, and Skunk and Nancy were the last band to headline Glastonbury Festival in the 20th century. You might say she's a colleague of mine, as for the past few years, you may have heard her presenting on Absolute Radio. A crucial role model in her field, she was recently made an OBE for services to music. It's Skin from Skunk and Nancy. Welcome, Skin. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Nice to be in the studio in London. Yeah, and yeah. you've just flown in? Uh, I'm, I'm just literally off the plane, got the Heathrow Express, got in a taxi and got here. Wow, well, thank so, you so yeah, much. yeah, you were seeing the result of a, uh, a person who hasn't slept for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, that's normal for us, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Enough about travel. We're talking about Paranoid and Sunburn. So, can you set the scene for me well it was our very first album and we just signed to one little indian who i think they're called one little independent now and um it was just a really crazy time Cass and i were in a band called mama wild it was kind of a band that we made a lot of mistakes in everything that you're not supposed to do we did and in many ways it was fantastic because it was this like huge learning curve of we ballsed up everything and then we got to a point where I was like, I know what I'm doing now. I know what we're doing now. I know what we should be doing, but we can't do it within this band because it's been <laughs> going for two years. If you don't, we're about to get signed. People were interested in us. Yeah. And I was like, no, not this, not with this band. So we ended that and signed up Skunk and Nancy. Yeah. And that just blew up very quickly. We got signed on our third gig. Fantastic. Um, and I think uh, the person who came to see us actually was Rick Lennox mm-hmm. from One Little Indian. And it was the day Kurt Cobain died. And he's a massive, he was a massive, massive uh, Nirvana fan. Yeah. And he wasn't going to come, but he came. And he said that the fact that we took his mind away from what happened yeah. with Kurt, he's just want to come and see us again. But he came backstage and he was like all enthused. So it was weird because it's one of the first things we did when we signed was record this album. You know, yeah, and it didn't come out for a whole year. And you had all the songs already. I mean, no, we we had a bunch of songs, but they very much sounded like the previous band, which was more bluesy and riffy. Okay. Um, and I was like, no, we need to. It's just not modern. It's not cool. It's too seventy influ- too much seventies influence yeah. and stuff. Um, and we wrote them really, really quickly. We wrote them. We knew that we had uh, six weeks of being in Milton Keynes at yeah. this um, nice Linford Manor. Oh, very nice. <laughs> do you know it? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. And so, you know, we we got the songs together. Um, literally writing them sometimes the day before we went in to record them. I think "Weak as I Am" was written the night before, or something like that, before rehearsals. And I just remember it was the first time we'd been in this really beautiful, fancy studio. There was this massive, beautiful old Neve desk, lovely rooms. And the live room was like a a huge church hall, like an old school hall. And we just couldn't do anything. It was like, it was the audience. What's going on? This is so sterile because we'd never, you know, we'd never recorded anything. Yeah. 
we're recording and everything sounds horrible. Everything sounds just no life, no fun, no spark. And it was... Um, so you were missing the connection with the yeah, audience? We, yeah. We, yeah, we completely didn't yeah. know what to do with that audience. First yeah. album. Wow. Never had that experience. And um, Sylvie Massey was a fantastic producer. She got the job because we liked Tool and liked a lot of the records that wow. she did. Very experimental, kind yeah. of weird. An yeah. amazing producer. And she said, well, you know, let's create a vibe then. So we went to like a rubbish dump and we went to an art shop and we created like a war zone yeah. in the studio. We just filled the room with absolute crap. And then we constructed this bunker, which is where I was going to sing in. Yeah. Inside Very Joe Strummer. Oh, really? Did he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, had cool. a sort of studio bunker, yeah. Yes, yeah, so yeah. it's like this bunker in the middle of it. And inside, I just put all of my thoughts and all of my feelings. I wrote them on bits of card and bits of crumpled up paper and stuck them on the wall as inspiration yeah. and that that just changed it that worked and suddenly everything started start to sound really good i always have like pictures so yeah. surrounding collection of pictures during an album you know like whether it's polaroids or things out of magazines or you yeah. know notes from a book yeah. or something like that i think it just like it's just a reminder isn't it sort of like to yeah. if you lose your train of thought you can just go back to looking around and think oh yeah that's what i'm trying to sort trying of think to, about i mean it's it's a weird thing because for instance, I didn't know how to get a, a sound in my my ears. Like I didn't know how. What, it takes time. Yeah, and the it whole takes years, live right? thing and studio thing. You know, I'm still monitors. working on it. Yeah, monitors. We, we, it was in the days of mon- big monitors on the stage where you can just you just hear an echo of your voice yeah, really, yeah, yeah. and you kind of roughly stay in tune. Yeah. Suddenly, I can hear my voice beautifully and clearly. Yes. And I was like, God, is that what I sound like? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I remember our first album, and I went for a rehearsal with, with, with the charlatans and I kind of like I'd been in a band where I was kind of thinking more Iggy or Jim Morrison and stuff like that so I kind of shouted along to these songs and they said can you try it again but sing this time <laughs> <laughs> so, okay so so and that's how my voice for the first album is my voice yeah. for the first album yeah, yeah. Happy Accidents Happy Accidents yeah or when the charlatans first started Rob our keyboard player would be doing um, backing vocals and we'd never be able to hear anything and the only way I'd be able to tell if we could, if we were even like vaguely in tune or not was by looking into his eyes. So I'd be like turning around and sort of like looking into his eyes. And if, and if we were both kind of staring at each other like that, I, I think there was a hope that we yeah. would be in tune or not. Let's hear the first song from Paranoid and Sunburn. It's Selling Jesus. That was Skunk and Nancy with Selling Jesus on Tim's Listening Party. Tim Burgess here, joined by Skin, going through Skunk and Nancy's debut album, Paranoid and Sunburn. Can we talk about track number one? Track number one? Yeah, which is Selling, Selling Jesus. Jesus. And um, I was thinking about the like the importance of being on OLI. Uh, were they supportive? I mean, I grew up listening to Crass and, you know, Love Flocks. Yeah. New smell, Flux well, Pink Indians. I mean, yeah, that was quite important to us because yeah. we knew that we were very, very different. Yeah. And we had to be able to artistically just do what we want to do, you know. Yeah. And we had a lot of labels that want to sign us yeah. and a lot of them were kind of already saying, well, you know, you've got to wear this and she's this and she's that. She's got so they were sexy. already thinking of like a, yeah. a mould. They saw the band in a way that they saw the band and that wasn't what I wanted to do. And it sure? wasn't how we saw the band, you know. Yeah. Was uh, the Bjork on the label at the time? Yeah, okay, because yeah, she was like part of, I mean, you know, I, I, I remember uh, KUKL. Um, yeah. When I was growing up, growing up, uh, this is really great compilation album that came out on Crass. Um, yeah. That I'm not going to say the name of. Uh, well, 
detective, but um, <laughs> and um, and uh, I didn't know that she'd already uh, come out on. Yeah, know. Bjork was amazing because she was super supportive. She gave us our first ever Top of the Pops appearance, so oh, she was wow. quite oh, fantastic. important in the very early stages. How, how, how do you mean that she gave you well, the first? Because we signed to one little Indian, and, yeah. and, it, and we loved that label because everybody on the label was, you know, there was um, the Shame went on there, there was Bjork, there was Chumbawamba. But there were all these bands that were very different from yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were all allowed to just do their thing. For us, it was much more important to get lots of artistic control. Yeah. And not so much, you know, it wasn't about the money. Yeah. Well, we got a good whack of money because everybody did in those yeah, days. Yeah, But it was much more about, well, no, you're not going to come in the studio and tell us what to do and tell us what we should sound like and all that stuff. So you didn't, like, need a guru? No. No, you just needed, you needed just support. Yeah, you know. we just need, wanted to get our music out yeah. and, and get signed. So Bjork loved us and Great. I still love her. I think of course, she loves yeah. it. Amazing. And she had a new album coming out. She was number one for three weeks. So rather than just doing the, the same song on top of the pops, she said, well, let's get Skunk and Nancy to remix Army of Me and then they can come on top of the pops with me. And oh, so that's what we did. We did a really kind of a rough kind of scratchy version of army of me and wow then, I, had, I had no clue that's fantastic yeah and then we did uh top of the pots with her which is quite a legendary thing i think they got loads of complaints because apparently i scared the children <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is fully my intention so and i remember riding <laughs> riding up with her um on the, we got this really nice car, nicest car I'd ever been in, and, and we just sat in the back and chatted all the way up there. And wow. she told me what the song was about and why she wrote it. And and it, yeah, I just remember it was just a really lovely sunny day in the garden at Top of the Pops. And, yeah. uh, and that was our first time on there. Wow. Well, there you go. Yeah. Fantastic. So, Selling Jesus. And funny, I just listened to the album because I thought, I actually haven't listened to this album. I, I don't know if this is the same for you, but. You know, we don't listen to our albums. No, I mean, I, I try to avoid them at all time. costs. Yeah, you know? I'm, um, I'm not going to sit down and listen to a Skunk and Nancy album. I'm going to listen to somebody else's. Yeah. And so uh, I listened to it on the way here because I thought, oh, I actually haven't heard it for a long, long time. And I was just listening to the way I'm singing and, and the way and what the lyrics are and stuff like that. And I'm from a very religious family. So that mm. song was quite important because the thing and even now my mum's so much more religious and so much worse than she was in those days oh, it's wow. just obviously there's true spirituality there and I'm not, not talking about those people but there's just such a con in this kind of Americanization of religion and, and it's yeah. all about control and it's all about yeah. money 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 getting as much money in and you see these people with like big fat gold watches on and they're asking for money it's like well you don't need any money look at your watch so it was just kind of that feeling and I remember I, the first thing I did when we got signs I bought when I bought a guitar yeah. and so that song comes out of me playing an A chord and just going up and down <laughs> you know um, just me trying to you know play guitar on this guitar that I bought and, and a song came out of it you know we just thought we'd start with a bang you know yeah and it pissed off a lot of people in America. Maybe that's why we never became big in America. Okay, this is the second track from your debut album. It's Intellectualize My Blackness. He tried to intellectualize my blackness. He tried to summarize, to institutionalize. Still, I could recognize he was materialized. He tried to Intellectualise My Blackness on Tim's Listening Party. I'm delighted to be joined by Skin from Skunk and Nancy. Intellectualise My Blackness. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting because we just started putting that song back in the set. Right. It was one of those songs that, you know, I, I don't think there's an album where I've done where we like every song. Of course. So, and this one, we just we just thought it was cheesy. We recorded it, then we had it in a set for a couple of years, and then we just took it out because we just thought oh, it's kind of cheesy. Did you like it at the time, though? I mean, to put it as like track we two. We loved it at the and, time. Okay, cool. We loved it at the time, yeah. and now we absolutely love it because now we, I think, having a break from a song for a few years is one of the best things you can do. It's yeah. like you've got to retire songs. Yes. 
bring them back when you I agree. bring them back. Because it feels in some ways like someone doing a cover version of it. Yeah, some songs You don't want to go through the motions, you know? but you kind of do, you know, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, some songs just lose the vibe. But yeah, now it's fantastic and we love it because it's got like a slightly different grind on it. And right. we do three-part harmonies on it now. And, and Amazing. Impressive. Str- <laughs> yeah. It's a... Uh, and but it's, it's it's interesting when you're a band that writes songs that are political. People always like say to me, "Well, how do you write political songs?" And I'm always like, "The worst thing you can do is sit down to write a political song. It's going to be rubbish." And I always say, "It's like I never in my life have sat down to to write a political song. Right. I've never sat down with that intention ever. In fact, most of the time, I'm trying to write love songs or something that's moving." And then something like intellectualize my blackness comes out of it. <laughs> so, well, there you go. And it was just a moment in time. The 90s was a very different era to how things now. I mean, you know, I've always been interested in politics and I've always been interested in what people are and how people are perceived and what people are doing and, yeah. you know, trying to make things a little bit better for yeah. people who are in different situations. Just because I'm a, I'm a black girl from Brixton. Yeah. You know, I'm a black gay girl from Brixton. Yeah. So that's my perspective. You know, I'm always going to be a Brixton girl and I'm yeah. always going to be a Brixton girl that lived through two riots, 1981, 1985, you know, yeah. underfunded. Brixton's now this um, wonderful kind of yuppie haven. It's, yeah, but it's glorious. But in the 80s and the 90s, you know, when I was growing up, there was no money going in there. And so, yeah, I just have a lot of memories of what it was like to be an inner-city black Brixton girl. And that's kind of where that song came out of. It came out of just that experience of like well that's not fair is it going on demonstrations as a kid with my mum so skin i wanted to ask i can dream yeah i can dream it was again it was one of the songs it started from me trying to do bar chords and just going and then i just sing i'll be a sailor girl and it just ended up being this really raunchy dirty song all about sex but it, was, it just started off just being a bar chord song and it somehow just worked and, and some lyrics came and I took it to the boys and we wrote a whole song on it. So was it almost like you were learning how to play? Or, yeah. Uh, was, I was it the first time you'd played the guitar? It was, yeah. I started playing guitar at 14 uh-huh. and I loved it and was really good at it and I started at the school and then the teacher left. Yeah. I was I was the goody two-shoe student. I was the best at it because I really wanted to play it. And yeah. The rest of them just like, Ugh. Yeah. Um, and then I just begged. Yeah. yeah, I just begged my family for a guitar, but we couldn't. We couldn't afford one. And uh, so, in like later on, like about when I was sixteen, somebody gave me an acoustic guitar that they'd found somewhere, but there were only four strings, yeah. and uh, they it couldn't tune, and it was acoustic and it was left-handed. So that went in the bin. Um, and then I never could have really afford a guitar until I signed our first record deal. I literally put the check in building society yeah. and then went down to Denmark Street and bought myself a guitar oh that's a good story yeah I mean my story is um, I took an acoustic guitar into primary school and yeah. some other kids like trashed it um, oh. which put me off playing guitar for a, a long time you know I had yeah. to kind of work my way back into getting the confidence to do that yeah it's um, heartbreaking yeah and it is heartbreaking but um, you know I managed to uh get back around to it you know yeah. in my teens <laughs> and uh, I, I, enjoy, mean, I enjoy playing I, guitar yeah I, I, I love it too but you know the thing I realised is that I'd be a much better guitarist if I'd have continued at uh, 14 and didn't have a 10 year gap I like the idea of not being a good guitarist. For me personally, I like the idea of like still being oh, very get, basic. I because get quite frustrated. Oh, you do. I want yeah. to do things, and I know I don't know how yeah. to do. Yeah, I mean, so, I get that too. But then, we for me, songs, right? Yeah, and I like the idea of you know always learning a new, a new chord is 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 incredible, yeah. and 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 a chord that I think maybe hasn't been invented yet. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to own that one. I just want my fingers <laughs> yeah. here, and, uh, really uh, wide. Uh, uh, and yeah, play yeah. Something and then you know it's, it's it becomes a chord if you can write a hook on it. If you can write a hook on it, then it's, then it's a chord. Well, That's exactly, funny. exactly. And <laughs> and and uh, just sparking off a different way of doing a melody uh, um, yeah. is what I get off on. But um, yeah, definitely would have been a better guitarist if uh, if it hadn't been sort of like smashed up in the school playground but yeah it was the time of punk though so i mean guess smashing yeah. up an acoustic guitar <laughs> yeah. is probably the right thing to do right. you know and i didn't know that but uh, yeah. you know this is i can dream on absolute radio
I can dream by Skunk and Nancy on Absolute Radio. I mean, I suppose like you have stirred up a lot of emotions with people and sort of like, you know. Good and bad. Go, well, of course, uh, happy and, you know, and, and uh, you know, strength of conviction and doing things in the wonderful way that you do things. I wanted to talk about the story behind Little Baby Swastika, track oh, four on the yeah. album. Little Baby Swastika, that was um, a funny little song. Quite a big story behind that song because the band was kind of born in King's Cross at the Splash Club because the Splash Club was actually started by Ace. He was in a band called Big Life Casino and they started the Splash Club as a place, you know, where bands could play but also to earn the money so they could rehearse. Mm-hmm. So when Skunk and Nancy started, I just mentioned to Ace that I was starting this band because I wanted him to be my band. He yeah. Said, okay, I'm going to be in your band. Okay. And we used to rehearse in this place, this really crappy crappy place in king's cross and it was in the days when i used to come out of king's cross station and run to the splash club and not talk or stop from anybody because yeah. you could get mugged it was just dangerous oh it's a different diff- different yeah, kind of place a completely different it? place to yeah. what it was now yeah. um, but we used to rehearse this place around the corner which was just an old building an old office building lots of rooms but the guy who ran it a guy called graham he was a massive national front bmp guy But he didn't mind taking his money, but he you'd walk in and there was this flag and I think it's about 10 meters high Or it was just absolutely massive. I've never seen a British flag so big and so huge And then one day I remember I was walking out and I saw this little baby swastika on the wall But it, it was really low down and really squiggly so it just looked like it was done by a little child, the little child's very first swastika. Oh, Jesus. And in my head, I just went, who put little baby swastika on the wall? And that just became the song. It was just this... Because, you know, the thing about if you're going to talk about anything political, you've got to personalise it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it can't be, you know, fight for your right or anything. All those clichés have been done. It's all been said, it's all been done. So if something bothers you and you want to talk about something, the way I do it is I find something that happened to me that's really personal that yeah. I can talk about because it happened to me. Sure. I don't generalise it and try and sum up the feeling of a generation. For me, it was like, well, who put that little baby swastika on the wall? It wasn't yeah. very high. It couldn't be more than four years old. That's who put the little baby swastika on the wall. Wow. And it became this song about that's where the kind of fascism and racism starts you know it's, it's some people you start it starts young yeah. and the song is just a kind of reflection about that and when we first started off joe wine and steven mack on the on the evening session they had this competition where they would play three songs from the band you know and the band that won it they would release it as a single do you remember that i think they, i do yeah. yeah and so we won and they had so it came out so on Steve Max label. Or? It came out on Radio One it, as a giveaway. That song was the wow. first ever single from Sky Connects as a giveaway, a seven inch. It's quite rare now. That's fantastic. So that was our first kind of hit, and it was quite a weird song, really. You know, it's like a lot of lyrics, a lot of syllables. Yeah. Big old riff, very up and down. But that's really the song that started it all. Was, wow. was that evening session, and then it all kind of blew up from there. Let's play that song, Little Baby Swastika. That's the fourth track on Paranoid and Sunburn. Little Baby Swastika. Tim Burgess here with Skin for a listening party. Do you feel like you've been like miscategorised? Or, you know, is there an advantage and disadvantage to being miscategorised or not quite yeah, in certain I camps? Mean, or I think every band feels like that at some yeah, point. Yeah. But I, and I just think that it's just... you really just not got to take it on your shoulders. I mean, I think in the early days we got kicked out of Britpop because we were perceived as being like too American sounding or too grunge or too heavy or blah 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 because in those days there were so many different types of bands right as yeah. you remember yeah um, the radio you on the radio you hear Massive Attack and Bjork then Goldie and then you know Charlatans and yeah. then, you know there's lots yeah. of different records yeah and then Britpop comes along and suddenly it's like a club that you're not really in you know right. like you're not the face of Britpop that Britpop wants to send to America to be successful yeah yeah 
And so I think in the early days, that was a bit like we weren't getting the TV shows. We were on Total Pots at first, and then we weren't getting the TV shows. And then so we just went to MTV, and then we were massive on MTV, yeah. and that was really good for us because that's the whole of Europe, mm-hmm. you know. And in some ways, we forged a plan to just get out of England as quick as we could. The one thing I remember thinking that we've got to be successful in other countries. We can't yeah. rely on England. Yeah. Because That's very smart. They will, you know, stab you in the back. <laughs> you know, we got to 100,000 record sales and all of a sudden the enemy just turned around and started giving us bad reviews. And it was the beginning of Britpop. We couldn't work out why we were suddenly unpopular in England. Mhm. And it wasn't until I wrote my book and, and, and after doing the research, I was like, oh, it, Britpop was such a deliberate decision. You know, it wasn't something just happened. It was a decision that was made by the industry. You know, we've got, we want British music to be, you know, we want to kick out all of the American grunge. We want to get rid of that. We want England, music in England and the English chance to be British and, and all that kind of stuff. I don't know, it's because we're black-fronted or whatever, but we were definitely not part of that. So that was kind of that very weird... There was a weird time between the second and third record where we were like, OK, so we need to, you know... Like where, do you get, fit, where do you belong? Kind of thing, yeah. yeah, I mean, England's like that, right? You sure. get successful, whatever you are, whatever kind of music you are. And it goes up and down, you know, yeah. like... Uh, uh, acceptance you, you, yeah you start not it, accepted at all yeah you kind of you know you sell a few million records and all of a sudden everybody hates you but it's just not the same in Europe and so luckily MTV loved us and we yeah. got a massive play on there and we just be, became successful in lots of different other countries and really that's the reason why we're still here I think yeah because if you just have England as a market then it's just too fickle and it, yeah. you, you can't sustain yourself but if you're successful in lots of other countries you know that can go up and down too but they're a lot more loyal I mean I was going to suggest here um, that we talk about uh, the OBE oh gosh because you know it's like um, role model as a front woman <laughs> of the 90s and I mean it's, so it seems to be getting really bigger and better for you as time goes on and it's a uh... You know, I think you stick around enough and you start to get a different kind of recognition. I think... Interesting, yeah. I interviewed Shirley Manson for Absolute Radio for my yeah. show. Oh, cool. And um, one of the first things she said was like, you know, in those days they really, which I had no idea about, that, you know, they, they put a lot of the female-fronted bands up against each other. Right. And so I never knew that that's what they did to her a lot. You know, they compared Garbage to Skunk and Nancy because in my head were two... You couldn't get two more. But it's just about bands. being around at the same time. Just being around at the same time. I know they did a bit of that with Gwen Stefani and stuff. But yeah, and she's like, but you know, I had no idea until the last few years how difficult it must have been for you being Elisa in the band, being who you were. Mm-hmm. I think there's a dawn of realization that's happened, which has been quite nice over the last three years, probably since Black Lives Matter, when people are like, wow, yeah. that must have been. Yeah. really difficult yeah. and really hard yeah. and you know but in my head I'm like well it's hard for all of us in many ways because it's just difficult it's difficult starting off a band yeah. which, whatever you like like you know I do really st- feel like you still got to have the great songs you might be a bit more privileged in some other ways but if you haven't got the songs then you know you haven't got the songs at some point you know there's got to be some authenticity at the root of everything you do. It feels like people are like, oh yeah, skin from Sky Canetsi or Sky Canetsi, yeah, you know. And we're OBE, still around. Oh, yeah, Glastonbury. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, people forgot we, we headline Glastonbury. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's, that's one of the things that racism does is that, you know, you just don't talk about black history and black stories and things that happen to black people. What's that film, that film about Disney's kind of Mexican film? Coco. Coco. I love that movie so much. Coco. (laughs) And I love the idea that I didn't know about until I saw that film, that the minute the photos aren't there of your ancestors, if nobody remembers them, then they just disappear. And I think that's that's what happens to a lot of black stories and black history, is that people don't talk about it. And so it just disappears. 
And I think that that kind of conscious and subconscious racism where mm-hmm. people just kind of erase the fact that we headlined Glastonbury in 1999 on the pyramid stage. God. And, uh, and it was awesome. You know, if you see visuals and video of that gig, it was absolutely magical moment. And I knew at the time that that was a peak. I, yeah. knew, I knew, okay, that's a peak, it's going to be downhill now. I'm so glad you're here to tell us about it, you know? Yeah. But oh, in 87, I, I think, was the first time I went. Yeah, um, we, we, the first time we went, we were playing. Right. And our tour manager messed up the passes. Uh-huh. So we were still trying to get in when we were supposed to be on stage. Oh. And then we literally got in 10 minutes late, ran on stage, did four songs, and then that was it. The reason why I'm telling you that story is because that's where the name of the album came from, Paranoid and Sunburnt. Ah, because so it was a hot one, was it? It was really hot. It was really hot, and someone gave me some weird drink, and right. I, the next twenty-four hours, I just wandered around in the days. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know. I said, "Just oh, drink some of this." And I was like, "Okay." And I remember lying around with some people in a teepee, and then like I remember thinking, "Where is everybody else?" And getting paranoid, like, "Where's everybody else? Like, where's the rest of my band?" And I got a bit sunburnt because I fell asleep in the field and woke up and the sun was burning. Oh, my goodness. And uh, that was the title of the album, Paranoid and Sunburnt. Skunkinance is all in the name of Pity on Absolute Radio. Can you tell me the stories about touring with David Bowie? Ah, you know... People would really like to hear that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was it was just such a lovely thing. I, he just took a shine to us, so yeah. we ended up playing before him on a whole kind of summer tour for a lot of gigs. So he just requested Skunkinance to play before yeah. him. And every time we played, we'd obviously go to the front and watch, you know. Uh-huh. And then with this time, he was playing, and I turned to my manager, and I was like, it's David Bowie, it's David Bowie, look, look, look. And my manager's like, edging me, edging me, because apparently he was looking at me, and then he started singing a Skunk and Nancy song. Oh, he wow. He sang Milk Is My Sugar. Wow. And I was like, I nearly died. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, David Barry singing a Skunk and Nancy song. But, you know, it's, it's funny because we, you know, we've all got this mystique of David Barry, but he was just a very normal, nice guy. Yeah, I had a chat with David. It's kind of very nice. Yeah. He's... Yeah, I said to him, uh, I'm Tim from the Charlatans, and he said, Tim, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, that was kind of about it, really. And then uh, John, our drummer, kind of started talking about his arrival in a hel- helicopter and stuff like that so uh, I think I think he was more I just let him take over really but he was he, always you know around that summer he was kind of you know just dressing rooms yeah or you know there's no segregation or anything from yeah. him um, from the rest of the people who were playing the same stage you know exactly. it's just all in the same backstage area I inside like, a stage and he had an area for, for Iman you know a legend in yeah. her own right uh-huh and I just went and stood next to her and someone said, oh, you can't be in there. And he was like, nope, she stays. Yeah. You know, um, mm. and once he took us on his private jet from one gig to another. Oh, us, cool. Showed us his tattoos. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know he had any. Yeah, it was a leg tattoo. Wow. And to this day, I'm very good friends with Gail and Dorsey. She went and played on my, my first solo album. Yeah, she's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, she's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And um, it's weird because we actually spent a lot of time with him. And, you know, you try and think of one story... And you can't really, because no. you just have quiet conversations. It's not, you know, we met Robert Plant and he's just full of stories and he's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. And, but Dave is much, he's much more quiet. And you just talk a bit about music and what's happening and songs and stuff like that. We uh, opened up for the Stones quite a few times. And I actually did a solo tour and opened up for the Stones by myself as well. And I thought that was... Oh, very jealous. Like, I was, well, I was very excited and... Um, I remember doing our sound check and turning around and seeing seeing Jagger warming up, sort of at the side of the <laughs> stage, just like take, taking it all in, doing his stretches and stuff like that. I thought, amazing. This is like what it's all about, you know. It's like what it's all about. And my mum and dad came to see the show, and uh, you know, we played, and then watching the Stones from the from the box, you know, at the it was an arena tour. 
Yeah. And he gave me a shout out, and it was pretty amazing standing there with my don't, mum and dad. Don't you like, think it's always the um... everyone went <laughs> doing that amazing expression that everyone pulls <laughs> that you know when, when you get a shout out from a from a god. The next song's called Charity. That song's called Charity. It's Tim Burgess here with you on Absolute Radio. Moving on to track seven. It takes blood and guts to be this cool, but I'm still just a cliche. Yeah. You know, that was written in response to... It was a review of a gig that just said I, we were just a bit of a cliche, you know? And I thought, well, the definition of a cliche is something that's just been done and done and done. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing like us. No, no, you know? no. Absolutely nothing like us. And Very I think unique. there was just like, there was a certain part of the press that was it was too unusual for them. And they were just used to the same kind of thing, the same kind of music. And then something comes along that's really weird for them. Yeah. And they just want to crush it. So it was just kind of written in response to to that review, which I've done once, and I, you know, we did that once. It's not something I do again. You know, it's like, you know, who cares? Yeah, I mean, I, I think guess... that's around the time I stopped reading reviews, anyway. Right. And it was just simply this. That title says it takes blood and to be this cool, <laughs> but I'm still just a cliche. I mean, you know, it's like one of my shouty songs. And I remember having an argument um, in the very early days. I was writing with a friend of mine called Len Aaron, right. and we had this massive argument because he was like, you can't change the tempo in a middle eight. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, you know, if you watch the dance floor when the tempo changes, you know, it's awkward for people or whatever. I'm like, I'm not writing for the dance floor. No. <laughs> you know? I love a tempo change. And yeah, exactly. And so that song, I deliberately even made it even worse. I used to like writing with him because we just row all the time about what the song. He was a very traditional songwriter uh-huh. and I just wanted to like take that and throw it out the window <laughs> yeah. and so we would have these we'd just argue all the time but a friendly argument about what you could do and what you couldn't do Yeah. and so that song came out of that I like that song because it's just all over the place it's just it's like a mad hatter it's wacky it's shouty the lyrics make sense and then don't make sense you know it's all about that it's funny because the way that I write is conversational. Yeah. So I learned how to write in a bit of a more poppy way later on. Yeah. But who's going to write a song? It takes blood and guts to be this cool, but it's still just a cliche. I mean, that's such a long title. Yeah, yeah. But that was the title of the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's bonkers now that, you know, I, I probably wouldn't do that now because I'm all grown up. But there's something lovely about the fact that I thought I could get away with it, so I just did it. And just thinking that was normal, it was yeah. just normal to me. I tried to outdo the Pet Shop Boys uh, <laughs> with the longest title. Um, you did? What is it? Uh, the Charlatans was I Never Want an Easy Life if me and he were ever to get there. Oh, but it's it was. Lyric, though. It's a good lyric, <laughs> uh, And the Pet Shop Boys was How Can I Expect to Be Taken So Seriously? Or maybe something like that. Uh, maybe maybe, maybe, maybe Nick can tell me. Blind and guts to be this uh, way, but you might have won. I think you might have won. That's 15 words. <laughs> I never want an easy life if me and he were ever to get there. Only 11. (laughs) And Pet Shop Boys, I beat them. (laughs) You beat them. And I've doubled the two of you. You doubled the two of us. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you very much. It takes blood and guts to be this cool, but I'm still just a cliche. On Absolute Radio, it's Tim Burgess here with another listening party. I'm chatting to Skin about Skunk and Nancy's Paranoid and Sunburnt. And next up is um, not a long title. <laughs> it's a very short title. But it's a big song. Uh-huh. Weak. Ah. Weak. Can you 
Tell me a little bit about that, please. Oh, God, that's another big old story. These songs, this first album, so many big old stories. Well, that's what this show is about, big old stories. I can remember the ones from this album. Yeah. But weak as I am, oh, it's a bit serious, this one. That was kind of eight years in the writing. I was, when I was 16, I was going out with this much older guy, Mm -hmm. not through choice, just because I was a quiet, you know, vulnerable 16-year-old Christian girl. Okay. Not anymore, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, um, and uh, yeah, and this guy, this guy who was like 29 who was training to be a doctor or something like that, who had a car. And he's just one of those guys that would hang out. My mum used to make us go to church and we went to some other church. He'd just hang outside the church and pick yeah. girls up and pretend to be a Christian boy. Oh, I give you a lift home. Oh. And then he ended up knowing where I live, which is why he gave us a lift home. And then um, he would just turn up and say, I'm taking you out. And it just kind of ended in a violent way because you know he's a bit abusive and controlling and it wasn't until I was at university so I ended that relationship by going off to university in Teesside Middlesbrough I'm like I'm gonna did you go that far deliver I got that far went that far because they had a really good interior design course oh that's that's what I studied yeah and because it meant that I could be really as far as I you know he's not gonna come up for the weekend 300 miles wow but he did. The wow! First uh, he drove I, was, up I, I, miles. I was kind of expecting that you were going to say that. <laughs> he did. Uh, he drove and, up. But I was miles. really hoping that you weren't. No, and, and so I moved. I moved, and he didn't know where I moved to. And I didn't tell my mum. I didn't tell anyone. I moved into a different house. I was in the halls of residence. Yeah. And then that's how the relationship ended. So, uh, which was great, and that was him out of my life. But it wasn't until like later on that I actually didn't realize that it was an abusive relationship because i didn't know what relationship it was it was my yeah. first ever relationship yeah. i thought that was normal right and so that whole experience happened when i went to university which was like 18 and it wasn't until years later after we got signed that i realized as a grown-up i, I remember i did some work with a rape crisis center and i was listening to people having conversations uh-huh. you know and just a whole bunch of stuff just dawned on me. I was like, oh my God, that's what happened to me. Wow. And so that just kind of festered in my head. And I, I don't, you, you probably have the same thing, like you've got things festering in your head and they, they don't come out in lyrically for years later. And I remember sitting down on my new guitar. That yeah. I bought my shiny new guitar that I bought with my, my record money. And I was just thinking about that and thinking, oh, how did I get over that, really? Because I did, I got over it. I'm totally fine now. You sure. Know, I, I, you know, got myself through it. And then I just thought, ah. Oh. Because I remember one time he, he hit me and then he started crying because he was like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I remember thinking, well, weak as I am, I've got, you know, I've got no tears for you. Mm-hmm. I've got tears for myself. And I remember thinking that, and that's where the lyric came from. Weak as I am, no tears for you. I'm no one's fool. Because this whole idea that I was supposed to feel sorry for him because he was the one crying because he hit me, but I wasn't crying at all. I was seething, you know, just blinding rage. Yeah, of course. It's like, how dare he, yeah. you know? That festered for eight years, and then that song came out of me like eight years later. I remember taking it to the bank because we were literally like, we need songs for this album. And I went, look, well, I've got this song. It's probably a B-side. And I played them the, the chorus bit. And they were like, no, that's great. And then we wrote the whole song, the rest of the song together. Wow. You know, I feel great about that now because I'm like, God, I got a really good song out of that. I see, it's a massive song. <laughs> and that's in some ways solves, you know, all the kind of what angst do you think? and agony I had went into that song. And then it just became such a positive thing. So, like, do you think the idea that it was going to be a B-side put less pressure on it, do you think? Or I think it, it was the first song I kind of just wrote on my own. Yeah. And so I didn't think it was anything because I did it. And everything yeah. that had come out, probably, you know, it, there was nothing to stop it coming out, I guess, because you were yeah. just thinking it was going to be something on a B-side. Yeah, I just wrote and- it. It's weird how things happen and they fester and... For me, I always think the quality in a song is how do you translate what happens to you? Yeah. It's the translation, that's the talent, or the quality of the song is how you can say to everybody else, and they get it, and it means something to everyone else. Yeah. Because I could have just said, you know, oh, 
I got hit in the face. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's not a great song, though, is it? <laughs> it might be true, but yeah. it's not very interesting. So I think some songs just need a bit more time to find the right words and lyrics for people to get it, for you to translate how you actually feel. So that one just festered, and then it came out in that. What story? Which was first really big hit for yeah. Scott Canetzi. Here it is, week on Tim's Listening Party. That was week sounding great on Tim's Listening Party on Absolute Radio. So, Skin, what musical styles did you grow up around? Well, my granddad had a nightclub in Brixton, and it was 31 Effra Road, and it uh-huh. was in the basement. Yeah. And my earliest memories are sitting on the top of the stairs, watching everyone kind of jumping up to Prince Buster, Scar. Yeah. So I started wow. off with Scar. And in my house, it was just, in those early days, it was just reggae. There was reggae, reggae, and when you got bored and wanted to listen to something else, you'd play some dub, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And my brother um, had a sound system. He worked with Saloid for a long time, and now he has his own sound system, so yeah. not now on Carnival and all that. It's weird because I had to go find rock music and indie music. I had to go find it. I didn't grow up with it at all. Did that add know? to your curiosity, do you think? Yeah, it was this thing that white people did... That right. was weird. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that made me very interested. Yeah, Because I just wanted to do something that everybody else... I wasn't like the normal black girl that just wanted to do R&B and yeah. do all that yeah. black girl stuff. Yeah. And it was the scar when that blue beat stuff came along. Yeah. You know, the specials yeah. and Pauline Black in a suit yeah, and all yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah. That's yeah. when I was like, well, that's, that's familiar, yeah. but different. The guitars are different. And that was my kind of pathway, really, into like what music and indie music was. Was all that scar that happened, you know, that we all loved. Yeah, and, I was uh, uh, really good friends with Terry Hall. Yeah, well. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, just revolutionised the whole exactly country, you know, and political. Yeah, you political. Know, he had a lot to say. Yeah, didn't he? amazing. Um, incredible artist. Yeah, and so um, people like him. That's what got me. That was my access to a whole nother world because I was one of those people that would just sit and watch Top of the Pops me too every Thursday 7 o'clock that was my act and I realised that there was like a whole other world because I was from this very tight small black community in Brixton yeah, and I wasn't part of the transient culture that you know Brazilians would come one year, Portuguese another year. You'd have all these transient people that would come into Brixton for a few years and then leave but I was part of the bedrock of Brixton the people who came in the 50s yeah and we were the first generation that weren't Jamaican we were black British yeah yeah and so I was aware that there was another world out there that I didn't know and I saw it it was like Top Pots was like through the looking glass and I remember Blondie in a stripy dress yeah. Of course, I remember the specials. I remember Pauline Black. I remember a lot of punk stuff. And so that was how I kind of got into it. And I, there was a shop in Brixton called Red Records. Yeah. And I would go in there and I could only, when I was a bit older, maybe 12, 13, I'd kind of save up. I could afford like one record a week or a month mm-hmm. sometimes. But I'd go in there and I'd sit in the corner and the guy in there was amazing. He just used to play stuff. He used to use me as a bit of a sounding board. Yeah, yeah. And he would just play stuff and just, oh, do you like this? Do you like that? Do you like this? Do you like that? And that was kind of like my musical education because I didn't too. have a stereo or anything like that. Then when I went to college, I, was, I had the biggest music collection because I'd been buying records since I was 12 or 13. Yeah. So then I became a college DJ. <laughs> played a lot of Cure. Did you? Yeah, <laughs> well, heads. very good. This is track number nine on Paranoid and Sunburn. It's And Here I Stand. So here I stand. Skunk Anansis and Here I Stand on Absolute Radio. Tim Burgess here with Skunk Anansis Skin, going through the band's debut album. In those days, it was just about capturing an energy, yeah. a feeling and a vibe, and 
and I was just trying to recreate what it was like to sing live. And then I hated the record for the next 20 years. Oh, well, that's... Uh... <laughs> well, what happened was we recorded the album. Yeah. And then by the time we came out, we'd done five tours of the UK. We were so much better. Right. So then I'd listen to the record and think, that's just so embryonic. It's just so basic. And it's, you know, my voice is better. My Everything's better now. Of course, you can't re-record it. No. And then it, I, just, I really just hated it for 20 years. And then, it, and then suddenly I realised that I fell in love with it um, because I realised that that's the point. You yeah. Know, we captured what we were like as a band in the first five or six months. Yeah, so it's at that moment. Yeah. And that's never going to happen again. And if no. we re would recorded it a year later, it would have sounded totally different. Yeah. And that kind of innocence and that simplicity would have been lost, would have been gone. So I have really amazing memories that it was so much fun. Yeah. I played football in the garden with the boys in between, yeah. Yeah, you nice. know, when the engineers messing around with something. Yeah. And really horrible memories as well. I had a bit of a breakdown on that record, actually, which I've only recently started talking about. Okay. Because I think that I, sometimes I give over the impression that I'm indestructible. Mm -hmm. And especially in those days, yeah. you know, I acted extra indestructible. You know, I had to be this, like, really tough, strong black woman. I had to be, like, more than everybody else. Yeah. And then... Everyone's like, yeah, you know, your vocals, they've got to be really good. They've got to be amazing, you know. And every time somebody passed me in the corridor, it's like, have you done your vocals yet? Yeah, they're going to be amazing. They've got to be like Aretha Franklin level. And then that just kept spinning. Aretha Franklin level? I can't, I can't do that, you know. No one can. And then I just lost my confidence as the days went on. Yeah. I lost my confidence and my voice, your voice starts to feel rough. And, and then I just had a bit of a breakdown one night. I just put all the furniture upside down in my room because I thought I thought it looked better <laughs> <laughs> and I was like and I just stayed up all night just moving furniture and putting things upside down and then they found me in the middle of the floor like star shapes like what's gone on the skin and and then I think people they were like okay well you're going you know you gotta go home for a few days and yeah. come back when you're ready and as I was leaving, I remember turning around, just let me sing this one song, <laughs> you know. Then we had this song called um, 100 Ways to Be a Good Girl. Mm -hmm. And I was really dreading it because I didn't, uh, it's quite an emotive song for me because it's about, I'm the only girl and there's three other boys. And yeah. they were all quite naughty. And I was the only one that started trying to be a good girl because yeah. I've got very strict Jamaican parents. Uh -huh. and, you know, they're very quick to hit you with the belt. So I was always trying to be this good girl. I was always trying to find ways to not get in trouble. Yeah. And then you kind of, when you're the one that's good or trying to be good, then you kind of get ignored. You become a bit invisible because there's all the naughty boys to worry about. So, but we don't have to worry about her. You feel a bit invisible. And so that song was quite emotional. I'm feeling quite emotional now, maybe because I'm tired <laughs> off the flight. But it's, um, so it's, it's, and so that was the song that I was dreading the most to sing because I knew it had to be, you know, you had to really feel it. And I just, the commercial part in my brain said, okay, this is the right time to sing this song. And I thought, if I don't sing it now, I'm not going to come back into the studio for weeks because I have to... It's like when you fall off a horse. Yeah. You have to get back on the horse. Yeah. So, yeah, I just went into the studio, put, put that one up. I think I did two takes. Wow. And then left. Must have been feeling it. And, uh, and that's the take that's on the album. And I went away for four days. felt a bit more normal. But because I'd sung that take, yeah. all of the things I thought I couldn't do... I did it, you know, and I, it was, I remember it was a big hurdle getting over that feeling and then going back into the studio and using that and, and singing that song. So, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> this is 100 Ways to Be a Good Girl. penultimate track on Skunk Anansi's debut that's called
called 100 Ways to Be a Good Girl. We're coming to the end of the album, and sadly that means we're coming to the end of the show. But before we do, Skin, I wanted to talk about um, playing for Nelson Mandela. So this weird thing happens, you know, apartheid ends, and it's still kind of a bit of a vibe about going there because obviously nobody wanted to... No one with any kind of soul or heart was going to go and support the apartheid by going to play there and to yeah. all white audiences. When I was a kid, 15, 16, I was living in a housing association and half the people living in the house were Namibians who were exiled from Namibia because they were fighting. There was the same kind of apartheid in Namibia, which is next door. It's like a German ex-colony that's next door to South Africa. And I was living in this house in Cot where there's half Namibians and half black British and it's one amazing white guy called Tom Minnie, who's still a friend of mine who, who helped run it and it was kind yeah. of connected to the church. Okay. And so then apartheid ends in 1990-1991 and people said, can you come and play in South Africa? And so I actually weirdly decided I had some friends who lived in South Africa so I'm going to go backpacking. So I went backpacking in South Africa, had the best time. And then um, I come back to England and our manager says, guess where we're going? And I'm like, where? Because we're going to South Africa to play. And I'm like, yeah, I was just there. And so we were the first kind of normal, diverse band ever to play there. I mean, before us, I think there was like Whitney Houston running around the stage going, I'm home, I'm home. But we were the first kind of like normal rock band to play South Africa post-apartheid. And it was just wild. But I was, because I'd just been there, I was so aware of all the things that we had to do. So it was actually like perfect luck. Yeah. Because I'm like, no, we have to go to Soweto and do interviews on the black radio stations, which none of the promoters wanted us to do. Got you. Because we were a rock band, we were perceived as being white. Got you. White music, white band, and the Africans were into African music and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, we're not doing that. I said, we have to go to Soweto and go to all the townships and do all the black press as well as the white press. Yeah. Otherwise, really, it's just a continuation of apartheid. You know, we're just, you know, the message is we're black fronted, but we're still, you know, in this white area. Okay. And it was weird. We had so many weird experiences because we had people kind of trying to section off the white members of the band oh let's go to rose rosebush and let's go to this area and people trying to get us oh you know let's go to Joburg and let's go to this place and this place trying to separate the band we made a pact now we all go together to everywhere we're not gonna like the black people go here in the band and the white people go here in the band yeah so it was a really interesting time and i remember coming back and uh, prodigy saying, you know, we've been asked to go and play South Africa because you just think we should go. And I was like, you have to go. But when you go, be aware that your promoter is going to try and market you in a certain way and you have to change that. You have to do everywhere and, and play to everyone. And so um, we got asked by Nelson Mandela to go and hit to his birthday party, his 80th birthday party, and go hang out, you know. And how was Mr. he? Mr. Mandela, Nelson. Um, it was really funny. Can you imagine? So you've got this big tent and there's a thousand people in there. But some of those people, you know, uh, there's Desmond Tutu, there's Miriam yeah. McCabe, there's all this, like, um, all the best of Africa is there. Mm-hmm. And I love African music, so I'm like, oh, my God, there's such and such, there's such and such. I remember there's, after the dinner, everyone's kind of, you know, Nelson Mandela who got married the day before, comes in with his new wife and everyone cheers. And then they start mentioning people to go up to be introduced. So it's like Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson goes up. Danny Glover. Nina Simone. First record I ever bought. Wow. Nina Simone. Stevie Wonder. Wow. All these people, you know. And then I turn to Cass and I go, and Skunk and Nancy. And then we just <laughs> cracked up, cracked up. And we didn't hear our name. So they had to say it three times. And we were like, it's us. And so we went out, met, met Nelson Mandela. There's something about him. He was just an old soul. And you felt this kind of vibe go up your arm. They're very old soul. They've been around a lot. And you just had a little conversation. And then I went and stood next to Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder. We all sang happy birthday to Nelson Mandela. And Stevie played keyboards. Uh, it's the Stevie version. 
The Stevie version, yeah, yes. Nice. Uh, yeah, no, not the... <laughs> you know, he's like, you know, I've got this track called Happy Birthday. No, we'll sing the other one. <laughs> we'll sing the classic, Stevie. You just rest yourself, mate. Uh, for the rest of the evening, I'm just obsessed with Nina Simone. I think she's one of the greatest artists. Of course, artists yeah. I mean, the documentaries are amazing. And the first record I ever bought at 14 was Nina Simone. Yeah. And I was like, I'll look after her. Oh, and yeah, I just yeah. sat in a hotel reception with Nina Simone, who who, who was famously could be very you tricky. know tricky and she was in the best mood and i don't know what we were drinking it was brown <laughs> whiskey, but we just sat in the reception and just drank and i told the the, the story about the first record i ever bought was an even small record i bought yeah. it i bought it off this guy in brixton market who got a bunch of them off the back of a lorry yeah. but i couldn't get to play it for six months because the record player was in the front room yeah. which was the room that we weren't allowed to go into you know and uh, it was just this beautiful room. Everything was perfect. It was always locked, you know. And I told her that story, and she goes, oh, you know, black women in their front room thinking the queen's coming round for tea. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And it was just the best night. I just had the best night. I just, I just sat, and she was just sat and telling me stories I mean, and just chatting. I mean, what, what, what a crew, you know, at this, <laughs> at this do. But, you know, I think uh, sitting with Nina Simone is, yeah. is pretty unbeatable. She's one of the artists that I really studied her voice, studied her phrasing, her tone, melody, and the lyrics and the meaning, you know. She's, for me, it was just the most magical thing when you get to sit with one of your idols. Track 11, Rise Up. Yeah, I hate this track. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> it's just like that track I think we scraped that one together because we need another track and right. it was kind of a track that was really popular in the previous band of Mummy Wild and it should, it should never have been on there for right. that for that one reason it should right. never have been on there it's just a tacky cheesy song and it got put to the uh, it just finished the album right. some people really like it you know I don't you know I think that it's okay to to write bad songs because they become an expert. Now I can, that song is my example of like, don't do that again. You know, don't um, don't put a song on an album for the wrong reasons. I'm obsessed with like final tracks of albums. Yeah, I'm gonna do it differently this year. We're gonna do it differently this time. Uh huh. Because you know, how do you end an album? There's so many different ways to end an album. Well, there's these euphoric endings. Um, well, you take it down, you chill it out. Yeah, there's an instrumental put, version, or yeah. I mean, but lots of it is kind of like you know, there's portals, new experiences that are yet to come. You know, yeah. I, I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, we've kind of ended albums with with poppier stuff. Yeah. And a lot of the time, I don't like those songs now. I find right. the last song on some of our albums just I hate them. But I guess this I've, is one that you kind of like had to kind of write uh, or had to come, had to come up with qu- uh, quickly for yeah. the for, for the end, and you put well, it on no, last. No, I think it, it it was a throwback from the previous band. Band, yeah. And it was really popular as a live track. Okay. And then it. Got so you thought recorded. it was like kind of a shoe in, so really? So it was great. And then it gets recorded, and when you spent the money, it's recorded. You know, people. You know, we're first band. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know that. Oh, we could just not put it on the album, even though we recorded it and spent the money. Yeah. We just thought, oh, we. It's like you paid for it. You've got to put it on there. Yeah. Now I know. It's like no, you don't. It can just go in the dustbin of bad songs. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it cheesy. I just think the title's cheesy. I'm sorry for all those people out there that really love that song. You should continue to love that song. Of course. And not listen to me because I don't own them anymore. They're in the ether. Well, that's it. I mean, but, but I mean, you but know, I like still, all the other songs. On yeah, album. I and, like and all the rest of the album. And you know, this is your record. You know, we uh, yeah. we want to know what you think. One of the um, <laughs> one of the things about this show and the listening party in general is the fact that. You know, it's, a, it's an artist uh, yes. talking about their record, talking about themselves in a, in a way for like for two hours, which I think is a, a really beautiful thing, yeah. and and it's quite rare, uh, I, I think that you know to get uh, the chance to do this kind of thing. But it is. I've absolutely found this fascinating, and it's been a really wonderful, wonder, wonderful show. Yeah, and I, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's it's you know it's it's a lovely thing to be able to actually tell the story to the songs. I, know. I don't think I've ever done this I know. in this way. In all of my 29 years of being in the record industry, where you've put, you know, where you sat down and got into detail and, and remembered every song, the thing I like about this album is it's just the four of us, and there's not a lot of backing vocals. It's just, you know, 
it's my feisty self. Yeah. I listen to the way I'm singing and everything's like... <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, that embryonic voice, you know, the, beginning, the beginning voice. But it's so earnest and we meant every word. Yeah. And we loved, you know, doing it. And it was, it was really hard and very tricky at some points and some points were just super joyful yeah. the, uh, there's a track called in here i stand and doing the solo for that song was just we smashed the guitar to smithereens and just yeah. had so much fun doing that track, <laughs> you know so yeah i think that's probably why it's now my favorite album i love it thank you very much <laughs> my pleasure let's hear that final track on paranoid and sunburn here's rise up That was Skunk Nancy's Rise Up. A big thanks to Skin for joining me on this episode of Tim's Listening Party to tell me about the album Paranoid and Sunburnt. I always like to finish every episode of my listening party by letting you know what else I've been listening to this past week. There's a band opening for The Charlatans and Johnny Marr and they're called Wax Tree Cast. And they've got a song called She and I've been listening to that. They're a great band from Manchester and um, yeah, they look really good. What I've been listening to, Temps, which is James Acaster and various artists. Um, I'm doing a listening party with James at Latitude, so I thought I'd tune in, sort of like have a listen. And just so happens that he's working with Quell Chris, who's like one of my favourite hip hop artists. And um, so that was a surprise. And the album is incredible. So I was offered tickets to go and see Elton John, and um, it was a you know, a beautiful thing. Uh, we went along and, um, you know, the morning of the show, I was told that El- Elton wanted to wanted to meet us and that was such a thrill. Not only that, he gave us a name check before Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, which was such a thrill. And we went backstage to meet him after and um, I've got some photographs, I'll, I'll share them on Twitter. Anyway... To cut a long story short, I've been listening to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road uh, pretty much non-stop before and since. Also, I've been listening to uh, Carol King, who I listen to her a lot, so I've been trying to get her into this section of the show over the past couple of weeks, but, um, you know, it's been pretty pretty rammed. Most of all, I listen to an album that she did under the name of The City, but um, that's a bit more obscure, so I'm going to say Tapestry. That's it for tonight's listening party, but keep your thoughts coming on Twitter using the hashtag tim's twitter listening party i'm tim burgess and thank you for listening i'll see you next time for another listening party every song in this episode of my listening party was taken from skunk and Nancy's paranoid and sunburnt all tracks are written by skin and len aaron except and here i stand and weak which credited to skin ace richard lewis and robert france the album was released on the labels formerly known as one little indian now known as one little independent and epic See you next time. Absolute Radio. Telling the story behind another iconic album with Tim Burgess. Get involved using the hashtag Tim's Twitter Listening Party.